Welcome to We Need to Talk About Tech, where we talk about the past, present, and future of technology. Hello, everyone in podcast land. On this week's episode of the podcast, we're talking about the brand new electric cars that have been shown off this week. And we talk about streaming. Is it here to stay or is it done already? All right. So our first topic of the podcast is electric cars. Uh, recently, we've talked about Tesla with the Tesla Tesla Cyber Rodeo, and uh, you know their future plans for the Cybertruck and the Roadster, as well as their taxi. Uh, but we're also seeing a lot of interesting stuff coming from the rest of the uh, electric car market, including some of the biggest automakers like Toyota, like Subaru, like Lexus, and like Mercedes. Most notably of which we have seen this past week. Mercedes Vision EQXX, their most efficient concept for uh, electric vehicles. They plan for that thing to have, you know, over 600 miles. Uh, Their 1,000 kilometer range vehicle, uh, it's a concept right now, but they recently just did a a road trip from Germany to France, which was 1,000 kilometers on a single charge. Uh, so, you know, they're, even though this is just a concept, this is just a prototype, they are proving that their technology is possible. And the the funny thing about this uh, particular vehicle, the EQXX, is that Mercedes wanted to focus on efficiency. They didn't want to achieve a thousand kilometers of range with a huge battery or, uh, you know, some really out of this world kind of uh, modifications done to it so that it couldn't actually be street legal. Instead, they wanted to do something pretty practical, which is make a very efficient car in terms of its drag coefficient. So, you know, previously with the EQS, their flagship uh, electric vehicle right now, that had a drag coefficient of just around 1.9. And uh, the EQXX is looking to have an even lower drag coefficient. Uh, I believe they're aiming for somewhere around 1.7, 1.8. So quite uh, much more efficient in terms of of ratio compared to the EQS. And they haven't really announced a ton of extra specs of what they want to go for in terms of uh, battery size or anything like that. But this does really show that they're focused on this efficiency uh, aspect of it. And yeah, it's it looks really, really cool to see that we can finally see a vehicle that can hit a thousand kilometers on a single charge. It's funny when they first talked about this earlier this year, it almost seemed like, okay, that's a pipe dream. That's not something we're going to see anytime soon, but no, they were able to pull it off already. And it's, it's kind of really impressive. And I know you mentioned how you really like this, this prototype and you were excited to see it. Uh, It's, it seems like it's becoming more and more real every day. And uh, on top of that, you know, Mercedes, use this kind of showpiece event of this 1,000 kilometer range prototype to show off some other vehicles, including their launch of their EQE, which is their electric version of their E-Class, which also has the hyperscreen kind of like the EQS does as an option. Uh, You have to pay a little bit more to get the hyperscreen on those vehicles, but uh, that is there. It's really cool. It's just like a smaller version of the EQS, but also their EQS SUV, which is uh, just, you know, their version of the an electric GLS, but with a similar design style to the EQS. So, you know, 
focusing on that lower drag coefficient, softer curves, not really hard angles and stuff like that. Looking more like almost like a bubble. We kind of made fun of like the Tesla Model S and or Y and three uh, for doing. But, you know, I think Mercedes has done a really good job with making their their cars look relatively okay while being uh, really uh, efficient. So it's kind of cool to see these two vehicles. And they announced that with the EQS SUV, they're going to do an AMG version, which we could figure, but they're also going to do a Maybach version of that. So this could be our first glimpse at what a Maybach uh, electric vehicle might look like going forward, which could be really, really cool. Um, and on top of that, just to round out some of the other news that we've been seeing, uh, we did get releases. The first ever electric cars released from both Toyota and Subaru. They did a joint venture to make this electric SUV, uh, and they just branded it uh, differently. So the the most, I guess, interesting one is the Toyota BZ4X, because Toyota was the lead on, on designing this, and Subaru has their version of the vehicle uh, as well. And with Subaru, what they've done to make it a little bit more different is they've made it uh, four-wheel drive standard and uh you know made it a little bit more off-roady but these are the first electric vehicles from these manufacturers these legacy manufacturers uh so hopefully this means that we're going to see more uh kind of electric vehicles going forward where i think they were really smart is that they decided to start with an suv or a crossover kind of uh so that's going to be really cool but then on top of that using the same platform as the toyota and the subaru vehicle Toyota's also going to do a Lexus version called the RZ, uh, specifically RZ450E. And this is going to be a more luxurious kind of version of, of the BZ4X, the Toyota version. Uh, it's going to have the kind of typical Lexus styling, but it's also going to have a giant touchscreen in the middle. But most notably, which I think is really interesting, we, we've criticized the the new plaid vehicles a little bit <laughs> with the yoke and you know a lot of traditional car people have said you know what they'd rather just have a steering wheel well lexus is going to be following Tes tesla's kind of lead here by uh, offering an optional yoke style steering wheel to this lexus rz vehicle uh and i would definitely recommend if anyone you know is interested at all take a look at it because i actually think it might be worse <laughs> than the tesla yoke um, really yeah, I, I think it's it's the design of it to me is not as aesthetically pleasing as the Tesla Yoke. Although I will say, I think some of the major issues with the Tesla version is what they've done by making like the horn a capacitive button and the indicators capacitive buttons, as opposed to either physical buttons or a physical uh, a switch behind the steering wheel or stock. They completely got rid of all those. Lexus didn't go that far. So at least there's a little bit more usability outside the steering wheel. But I do think the Tesla steering wheel does look a little bit better, a little bit cooler. Uh, but yeah, you know what? Lexus wants to uh, join that bandwagon and put a yoke in their car as well. Um, but who knows? It, at least in this case, it's optional. I think the standard is a regular wheel and you can upgrade to a yoke if you want to. I don't know who really does, but, you know, I'm sure there's going to be someone out there. But I'm I'm curious, what do you make of like all of this news about electric cars, uh, specifically the 1,000 kilometer range? And do you think it's a good idea for uh, a lot of these car manufacturers to follow in Tesla's footsteps with things like yokes um, when, I don't know, uh, it seems like a lot of traditional car people might not be a fan of those. 
I'm very excited for just electric vehicles in general. I mean, as we've said numerous times in the past, right, we think electric vehicles are definitely the future. And yeah, when we heard about the EQXX, when we saw about it, I think it was CES where they first debuted it or they they first talked about it, you know, a thousand kilometers in range is very ambitious. So, you know, a little skeptical at first, I'd admit to think, okay, that's good that you can say that, but we'll see once there's actual real world testing, what it ends up being. But the fact that they were able to back up the claim that they made, I mean, it's huge. Yes, it's a concept for one. It's not, you know, something you could go out and buy immediately. But I think the fact that they, I think the fact that they were able to produce a concept car that could do this is a big deal. It's a huge deal. Mm-hmm talking about a thousand kilometer range. So yes, they can make a vehicle that can hit 1000 kilometers in range, which is about, I think, 648 miles. I think that's what you said, right? Um, But just to compare it to other electric vehicles that are on the market, right? Lucid Air, which before this was the biggest range possible, had a range of 520 miles. The Tesla Model S long range had a range or has a range of 408 miles. So if you think of, okay, the top performing electric vehicles, the top selling has a range of 408. Mercedes can make a car with 648 miles. Now maybe it's, okay, the best technology they have, the lowest drag efficient they can make possible, the hardest to manufacture. Sure, maybe they don't make that widely available, but even... Let's say if they make something with a 600-mile range Mm -hmm. or a 550-mile range, which is still considerably lower than what they're capable of, the fact that they're they're capable of making something with a 648-mile range means all of their vehicles below it are going to be that much better than the competition. Yeah. And so I think that also because they're able to make a vehicle with such far range, it's now saying, hey, Lucid Air, hey, Tesla Model S. Hey, you know, even hey, Toyota, hey, Porsche, you have to make cars with better ranges now because, hey, Mercedes showed that this is possible. And yes, it's their top of the line vehicle, but we know that in their lower vehicles or, you know, in their actual production vehicles and not just concept vehicles, a lot of the technology, a lot of what they learn making this EQXX possible is going to trickle down into their other stuff. So I think you know, I think we're at a point now where we're going to start seeing more range competitions, right? Because yeah, Tesla was, okay, we have the fastest production vehicle ever in the history of vehicles. Okay. Yeah, that's great. But like, if I can, if I can't drive to the grocery store and back without having to charge my car, then like, what's really the point of that? (laughs) So I hope that we're getting to a point now where we're seeing competitions in range in the efficiency of the vehicle and like you said you know it's not necessarily okay we're going to put the biggest battery on this thing possible it's no how can we make this car more aerodynamic how can we make it more efficient to get better ranges as opposed to just slapping bigger batteries on everything and i think you know the other question you had was you know how do you feel about people copying tesla when they there's a lot of criticism about the yoke to say the least, it's good that they're copying them, but it's also 
they are not completely copying them, right? Because they have learned from Tesla's mistake. They have said, or they've realized that, hey, we're going to make this an option because probably some people were very uh, positive on the yoke. A lot of people were very negative, but there was obviously enough people that were positive on it that they decided to make it an option. And even if only like 5% of people ordering this RZ end up getting a yoke, just the fact that it's an option. So you can make those people really, really happy to get a yoke steering wheel, but then everyone else that just wants a regular steering wheel has a regular steering wheel. I think another thing that they learned from Tesla too is they've kind of tweaked the turn radius of the steering wheel. So I think with Tesla's yoke steering wheel, it has a 180 degree like from lockout one direction to lock out the other direction, which in terms of like ergonomics of driving, especially with a yoke where you don't have a circle that you can, you know, go hand over hand with, it makes turning very difficult. And we've seen videos of people having problems doing three-point turns with the yoke steering wheel. Uh, Lexus has shortened their turn radius to 150 degrees. So you don't have to get that full, you know, hand over hand motion one direction and then back the other with the yoke steering wheel. So they've said, hey, not everyone loves the yoke. We're going to make it optional. Also, people who do have the yoke have problems doing, you know, three-point turns, we're going to also make that easier too. And so I think it's great that Tesla is, you know, trying to create new things. But I think part of the problem with trying to do things brand new is you're going to run into problems that no one else has run into just because you're the first to do it, like the yoke steering wheel. Yeah. But also when you look at things like infotainment systems, right? Like they removed all buttons possible from the infotainment system. Yeah, it's, you know, revolutionary and it's cool and it's groundbreaking, but people also like buttons on their infotainment systems. And that's why we have something like the Mustang Mach-E, which has a huge infotainment system, but then they still have that physical dial for things like volume control, for things like air conditioning, because they saw where Tesla went wrong and, you know, just kind of took that tactile control away that people actually wanted. So I think it's great that people are copying Tesla, but not to the point where they're following, where they're falling in the same pitfalls that Tesla has fallen into. So, you know, it's good for Tesla. I'm glad that Tesla does crazy things like yoke steering wheels and takes all the buttons out of their cars. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess it's great that they take horns out of their cars too, because then people realize that, you know, someone might actually want a physical horn instead of a capacitive button. Yeah. But I think, I think we're getting towards that golden age of electric vehicles. Cause you know, as we've said before, we've already gotten past the point where, okay, electric vehicles are just born and slow and they're not fun to drive. They're very fun to drive. They're very cool looking also. And now we're getting to the point where, yeah, this could like double the range of your gas powered vehicle. So it's kind of, they're winning on all fronts now with electric vehicles, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, a fantastic point because you mentioned the Mustang Mach-E uh, learning from Tesla. And I think specifically with this, this RZ vehicle or RZ, depending on where you live, uh, vehicle from Lexus, they also learned from that as well, where the Mustang Mach-E has that physical volume wheel on the touchscreen. And what Lexus did is they put very similar physical 
uh, climate control wheels on their touchscreen. So there's two wheels on either side for the driver and the passenger to adjust their climate control so it doesn't have to be done through touchscreen. It can actually be done with these physical wheels, very similar to how the Mustang Mach-E did. And I think you're right. We're in a, a situation where these companies are going to quickly learn from each other. Uh, so, you know, learn from Tesla's mistakes and then, you know, Ford might do something that's like, okay, you didn't like that Tesla did this, so we'll do it this way. And then a company will be like, well, yeah, you like that Ford did this, so we're going to double down on that and do it even better. And I think you're right. This is going to be a, an opportunity for companies to kind of leapfrog each other. Uh, one quick question I do have for you, though, is we're starting to see ranges go up relatively quickly, at least in terms of of concept vehicles. Because right now, most of the vehicles that you can buy, especially on the more affordable end, have ranges between the, you know, 200 to 250 mile range or 300 to 400 kilometer range. If you're in the market for a vehicle right now, do you think it makes sense to wait uh, to see what the future of electric vehicles, these these ranges increase maybe exponentially? Or do you think it's it's okay to buy a car right now that has a range of, of you know, 225 miles or 300 kilometers because you drive a lot more than me do you think you could be comfortable with a car that only had like a 300 kilometer range or would you wait for 600 i would wait for 600 Mm -hmm. personally um you know i have i bought a car fairly recently a couple of years ago coming on three years now so i'm not in a rush if i was in the market for a vehicle right now I mean, the way gas prices are looking, I probably yeah. might just get a car with a 300 kilometer, you know, a 300 kilometer EV range. Mm-hmm. But my current situation, it yeah, I'm not going to get an electric vehicle with less than a 300, with a 300 kilometer range just to say, okay, I'm getting an electric vehicle, right? If If you have a vehicle that works completely fine, I would say you don't need to switch to EVs right now, especially if you're someone who drives a lot or who wants to drive a lot or wants to go on road trips, right? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. It's it's one of those things where with the range, I'm sure charging speeds might get better. Battery technology might get better. Uh, efficiency will get better, as we're seeing from from Mercedes. So yeah, who knows? It seems like we're we're still as as much as we're seeing so many new electric cars come out right now. It still feels like the early days. It's like mature and early at the same time. Of like, no one has really perfected the electric cars. I'm sure a lot of Tesla people would love to say Teslas are perfect, but there's a lot of improvements to be made in terms of what it means to be an electric car. Uh, so yeah, maybe if you don't need something right now, it makes sense to maybe wait a bit to see what you know, Mercedes brings, what Toyota brings, what hopefully uh, Honda brings, because, you know, they're they're running a little bit behind right now. Yeah. But I mean, hey, as we mentioned in our last podcast, right, GM and Honda are working together on that Altium platform. True. So I think very soon we'll see something. I don't know. I think we'll see something good out of them very soon. Hopefully. Even like a, a Honda HRV electric version, right? Because, I mean, I guess it seems like SUVs are maybe a bit easier of a sell. Mm-hmm. Possibly because, you know, they're more versatile, because you can do more with them. You know, if we're trying to sell to families, it's it's easier to market an SUV than it is a sedan, right? 
But, you know, also maybe partly because the Model S Plaid is definitely the best sedan. Like, you're not going to beat that. Yeah. So it's almost like, why even bother trying have your first electric vehicle compared to such a dominant vehicle where the electric SUV market is kind of open, mm-hmm. right? As we've mentioned before, the Mustang Mach-E is at the top right now, but that's more because the Model Y just kind of dropped the ball. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I could see a Honda HRV or a Honda CRV electrified version do very well, especially it has, if it has a decent range, something even like in the 600 kilometer range. Yeah. 100%. I, I definitely agree. All right. Our second topic of the day is streaming, just streaming in general. Kind of what this has been spurred on by is recently Netflix had their quarterly earnings. They kind of revealed some of their numbers for the past year and how they've been doing. And one surprising thing, depending on who you ask, one thing that could be seen as surprising is Netflix lost 200,000 subscribers in the first quarter of 2022. That's a lot of people. Um, it expects also to lose another 2 million in the second quarter. Now, compared to previous predictions, they were expected to add 2.5 million subscribers in the first three months of the year. So the fact that they're not, you know, not even underperforming, they're moving in the complete opposite direction is something that's, you know, pretty troubling to see. And the reason this is more of a, topic on streaming in general as opposed to just netflix sucking it you know kind of got me thinking right netflix has been kind of the golden child of the streaming world for so long because they were the original streaming platform because of netflix's success and their growth their constant steady growth throughout the years right it's it's definitely inspired other companies to create their own streaming services. When you look at, you know, Disney plus, when you look at Hulu, when you look at um, Amazon prime video, you know, a lot of people have used the model that Netflix created and they've tried to emulate it with their own, their own IP, you know, the own property that they earn. And the fact that Netflix which seemed like it was, you know, untouchable at the top of the streaming world has been, has shown such a decrease right now. It's kind of, it's, I think it should be troubling for companies who are trying to have streaming services. I think it should be troubling for them to see, right? Because you could look at it as, okay, this is a problem with Netflix. They don't have stuff that people want to watch. You know, they've gone stagnant. They've grown stale. You could look at it that way. But how I kind of look at it is they are just ahead of everyone else on their life cycle, right? They, because they've been around the longest, they've gone through the exponential growth at first, and then they've kind of plateaued. And then now they're, they're falling, they're dropping off. And, you know, maybe it could be because there's so many other platforms out there. So people have more variety. Whereas before when Netflix, when you know, when Netflix started, they were the only streaming service there was. So if you wanted to stream something, if you wanted to have, you know, 
a vast catalog of movies and TV shows at your fingertips, Netflix was the place to go. But now you have so many options. So now there's more things to pull you away from Netflix. So maybe that's why it's dropping. Or maybe it's, like I said, they're ahead of everyone else on their life cycle. And what we're seeing isn't Netflix fumbling. It's more, this is what's going to eventually happen to all streaming services, right? Especially when you look at, hey, Disney Plus is great right now, but there's going to be more and more competitors out there. And eventually, maybe Disney Plus will be at the top and there will be more streaming services, more platforms coming out that will draw people's attention away. And so they're going to have their exponential climb with their Mandalorian TV show and, you know, all the the WandaVision Moon Knight series. But then eventually they're going to plateau and there's going to be a drop that comes for them. It's probably going to happen quicker than it did for Netflix, if we're being honest about it. Right. Because, like I said, Netflix started when there was no competition and then they had competition. And now it seems like there's too much. And Disney Plus is trying to, you know, it's trying to start itself. It's trying to grow in an era where there already is competition. So if I'm predicting the future, I think it's going to happen sooner to Disney Plus. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to happen sooner to a lot of these streaming services. And another thing that kind of has me thinking this right is CNN Plus, another company that tried to start a streaming service. Now, it's a news company, so a little bit different than just strictly entertainment. But they're shutting down one month after launching because their numbers were so terrible. Now, once again, this is news. People don't want to necessarily sit around and binge news for a day (laughs) or a weekend. So it's a little bit different. But, you know, it is streaming nonetheless. And then maybe we can look at that and say, hey, if your content isn't new and fresh and good enough, you're going to, you know, it's the end for your streaming service. So what happens when we run out of, let's say, Marvel characters to give TV shows to? What happens when you run out of Star Wars characters to give spinoff TV shows? I mean, I'm still going to watch them, (laughs) but the vast majority of people probably won't. So it's when you run out of new engaging content, is that when your streaming service begins to die? So I guess my question to you, do you see this, this massive decline in Netflix numbers? Do you see this shutting down of CNN plus? Is this a general trend for streaming services or are these just one-offs and very unlucky instances? Yeah, I 1,000% think that this is a trend that's going to continue. Uh, but I believe the reason why this is happening is almost like an embarrassment of riches kind of a situation where there is so much good TV out there uh, that there's just way too much competition. I'm one of those people, and we've talked about it a lot on this podcast, I think Netflix is, has been the best it's ever been. Uh, recently... The stuff, the movies, and the TV shows that have come out of Netflix, yes, there's been a lot of really bad stuff. Not going to lie and say that there hasn't. But the good stuff has been at a quality that we've never seen from Netflix before. Things like Tick, Tick, Boom, Trial of the Chicago 7, uh, Queen's Gambit, uh, Disenchantment. Like so many things, if I go through Squid my list. Squid Games. Squid Games. The 
the show that took over the world when it came out, right? Oh, sorry, Squid uh, Game. Squid this Game. One Squid yeah. Game. <laughs> well, there will be a Squid Games because I'm sure there's going to be a second season. There, but, it's been announced. Yeah. Yeah, and and obviously we're going to see more of of Stranger Things recent uh, soon. We just got the trailer for Stranger Things four. So yeah, Netflix is doing a fantastic job in terms of the content that they're making. But there's two big problems with that. One, the content that they're making costs a lot of money. I mean, it costs a lot of money to have Ryan Reynolds make a movie on your platform or have... Uh, well, Ryan Reynolds, The Rock, and Gal Gadot all in the same movie. Exactly. Be like, cheap. This is This is going to be expensive, and it has been expensive. And the reason why Netflix has been able to justify paying that much is back when they started making this this play and you know spending a lot of money on content they were the only legitimate game in town they were the only ones that were offering this this kind of service uh, to this amount of people and it's to the point where they were able to knock out companies like blockbuster and you know kind of dominate but that's not the case anymore disney plus exists uh, hbo and hbo max exists Hulu is is bigger than it's ever been with its live services now. You have YouTube uh, Live. I, I can't remember what their live service is called. But you have the YouTube service where they now offer live TV. And obviously they, they've stopped doing their originals. But, you know, uh, there's so much competition out there. And then the second thing is price. Uh, because there's so much competition and you have companies like Disney Plus who can undercut Netflix right now. Uh, it's going to hurt them to the point where very recently before this huge drop in subscribers, I shouldn't even say huge drop in subscribers because I don't think it's as big as the the stock price is huge drop, but I don't think the subscriber drop is as dramatic as, as maybe the headlines make it seem. I think what makes it super significant is this is the first time we've seen a subscriber drop in, I believe Netflix's history. Uh, yes, so in yes. nearly a decade. Yeah. I'm sorry. So, in more than a decade, this is the first time they've lost subscribers. So this could be, you know, just the warning shots for things to come, even though it's, it's I believe, only 200,000 subscribers that they've dropped. Uh, it, it could be an indication that there's going to be more drops. And I, I think this is very, very telling, considering it comes just after they raise the prices again. And although they raised the prices very little, I believe it was less than $2 they raised the price, I think it begs the question to a lot of people of, well, I watch something from Netflix maybe twice, three times a year. Does it make sense for me to pay $30 or I should, that's a little bit dramatic, $22 a month uh, for this service that I'm going to use maybe three times a year or I watch, you know, something that I've watched a million times before over and over again. Uh, I think a lot of people are going to start questioning that monthly purchase. And why I completely agree with you why this is going to be a trend is that Google Plus, sorry, <laughs> Disney Plus, can't afford to Google Plus hasn't existed for years. <laughs> uh, failed social network. But Disney Plus can't afford to keep their their monthly cost this low for forever. The amount that they're spending on these Marvel shows and these Star Wars shows, they're very expensive shows. They're They're running this platform at a loss right now. And eventually they're going to raise prices. And when they do raise prices, a lot of people are going to beg the question, does it make sense for me to keep Disney Plus at this higher price? And for a lot of people, it's going to be no, because they can go over to uh, Discovery Plus or whatever their service is called, or HBO Max or whatever the, the future of that service is going to be called when Discovery takes it over. 
there's just so much competition and so much great TV out there, even from traditional cable companies. Uh, almost every single cable company from CBS to uh, CTV in, in Canada or, or any company has their own streaming service and they're all putting out great TV. So yeah, there's so much competition and uh, to the point where I think a lot of customers are going to be able to pick and choose what they really want because there's too much stuff for one person to watch. So it's like, I'm just going to pick the cheapest option and stick with that. And for companies like Netflix who want to spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year on content and Disney Plus who want to do the same, I just don't think there's enough eyeballs for them to sustain that price range. Uh, and when they start raising the prices, people are going to fall off and it's just going to be, like you said, downward trend for all of these uh, platforms. And it's going to happen a lot quicker than it happened with Netflix because they're all competing with each other now as opposed to Netflix just being on its own for almost a decade. So yeah, I, I definitely agree with you 100%. All right. My follow-up question to that. So this is a general trend when it comes to streaming right? Another, I guess, popular streaming market that we've seen is video game streaming, mm. right? We've talked about Xbox Game Pass and how great of an option that is. PlayStation is now getting into game streaming also, you know, not exactly like Xbox Game Pass, but something similar. You subscribe for a certain fee, they have a tiered system, and the more you pay, the more games you can test out or stream right so if this is a trend with netflix the originator of the streaming model does that mean okay at some point xbox game pass isn't going to be successful it isn't going to be lucrative for xbox or microsoft it isn't going to be lucrative for the game studios producing these games are we going to see the same trend happen for them or do we think that this is just something that's exclusive to to TVs and movies. Cause I mean, if you ask me, I think, especially from the gaming studio standpoint, game streaming doesn't make sense simply because you have these huge studios with, you know, hundreds of employees producing these games, you know, for multiple years at a time. Sometimes a game may take decades and at least before Xbox game pass was around, you were doing so with the idea that, hey, we are going to sell this game for $70, $80, $90 a pop. So at least when somebody plays our game, we know that we're getting $70, $80, $90 in return from it. And we're going to have enough people playing this game that it's going to, you know, it's, it's going to be profitable for us. But now if, let's say, I'm making a game for Xbox and I've spent five years and I have 100 employees now that game isn't getting 70, 80, 90 dollars for each play. Now I'm getting a fraction of what, 18 dollars a month, which really, you know, doesn't equal out for those overhead costs that I thought I was going to that I thought I was going to make up when the game came out, right? So I think if you ask me, I think that video game streaming at least from the game developers point of view is, isn't going to be as beneficial and it's going to happen sooner rather than later. But I, my question to you then is we've established that, hey, this is a trend for overall streaming. 
do you think then that the same thing is going to happen to video game streaming to, let's say, Xbox Game Pass to Sony, what they call it, PlayStation Plus premium tier? Do you think the same thing is going to happen for them? I think it's hard to say at this point, uh, simply because we're at the point right now where Netflix was uh, when they started offering their online content. Because if anyone remembers the history of Netflix, they were a DVD rental service at first, uh, and they still are in some markets. They still send out <laughs> DVDs uh, to people's homes. And then they transitioned to this online service, which kind of started the end to typical things like Blockbuster. The reason why I think it's a little bit different for video games right now is right now, I guess the model for video games is you're going to spend 60 to $90 on a brand new game, a uh, one-time purchase, right? Whereas if your Xbox Game Pass or your PlayStation Plus, you're going to be spending anywhere from 10 to $15, or I should say 10 to $17 per month to play a bunch of games, which is a lot less than that initial game purchase. When Netflix started, it was very similar to the cost of just renting a movie. So there wasn't really a lot of benefit to going out and renting a movie if you could just subscribe to the service for the same cost and watch a bunch of movies, not have to worry about rewinding it. Well, I guess you didn't have to do that with DVDs, but <laughs> but uh, you don't have to worry about returning it and late fees and all that stuff. Uh, I think video games is in a very different place right now in terms of the average price of a, or cost of a game is very expensive. That being said, I do think this could be a, a really good precursor to what might happen in the video game streaming market in terms of what happens when more and more companies start to compete with Xbox Game Pass and PlayStation Plus. Uh, then, you know, it's going to be a race to the bottom at that point of who's going to be able to charge the least. And when it comes to Microsoft, Microsoft is in a similar situation to Disney where they can afford to take a loss. They can afford to you know, uh, undercut a lot of their competition just because they have so much money in their in their pockets. Uh, so I think that's more of a, a concern for, for someone like Sony. But when it comes to the developers, I, I find it really interesting that you bring that up because very recently in the news, the developers of Oddworld Soulstorm, a video game that released day and date on PlayStation Plus, talked about how that launch was really devastating for them in terms of, of money that they made. Because upon when they were ready to release the game, they were in debt. They were struggling to have enough money to finish the game. So what mm -hmm. they did is they took a deal from PlayStation Plus to say, hey, we'll take this this you know amount of money, this set amount of money, and we'll release it day and date on your subscription service. Uh, but they were at that point, they were projecting to sell anywhere between fifty dollars to $100,000 50 to 100,000 copies of their game. The game ended up getting downloaded 4 million times. So could four you imagine million. 4 million? Yeah. So could you imagine like, obviously all those 4 million people wouldn't have bought the game if they just released it. But when you're yeah. projecting as low as 50,000 copies and 4 million people download it when it's offered on this service and you're already struggling for cash to the point where you had to make this deal in the first place, I could imagine it could be quite devastating to think, what could have been if you just released the game? And I imagine this is going to be something that happens to a lot of developers. Whereas, yeah, it's safe to take this money from Microsoft or Sony to release it on their services. But, I mean, the potential is going to be a lot less than what it would have been if you just released the game for 60 to 
or even $30 or $40, whatever price point you deemed uh, was worth it in the beginning. It's, there's, there's always that ceiling that if you sell that game to those services, you're not going to be able to hit that. And I think that's going to be a very big issue for a lot of these developers to kind of handle. Um, but I think in terms of video streaming like Netflix and Disney Plus and video game streaming, I think the key is the same for both of them. And it's it's spending. Yes, it it's great to advertise that Netflix has a movie with Ryan Reynolds, Gal Gadot and or Gal Gadot and uh, uh, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. But I. Squid Game makes made them way more money, right? Like mm. that's what they need to focus on. They need to focus on the smaller budget experiences that really gravitates towards people. Or even something like uh like the limited series of Queen's Gambit. Once again, another show that kind of took over the world when it came out. Those are what they need to focus on. Whatever I don't even remember the name, Red Notice. Red Notice didn't take over anything. No one talked about it after it came out. So I think that's the key is really focusing on what you're spending on. And I think the same is going to be for uh, PlayStation Plus and and Game Pass is Microsoft and Sony need to kind of make sure that they're not spending too much on the, on the games that are getting released on these platforms. And I think Microsoft is already heading to that direction. We're seeing games that they're releasing seemingly having smaller scopes. We've talked about how the, the uh, initiative, the team that's developing uh their their perfect dark game smaller team right obviously they they hired in crystal dynamics to help but i think that's going to be the the key going forward is smaller teams lower development costs smaller scope games releasing on that service so that they're not spending hundreds of millions of dollars on 500 studio uh 500 people studios to get these games released that is just going to be put on a subscription service that's not sustainable uh, and I think the same thing is going to be for Netflix and Disney Plus. There's going to be a point where we're not going to see movie level Star Wars shows on Disney Plus anymore. And they're going to have to do that if they want to be successful going forward. I guess my question to you is, do you stay with Disney Plus if you're not seeing these blockbuster level Marvel and Netflix shows like you are right now? Personally, I do just because I'm a fan of Star Wars and Marvel. Mm-hmm. Like we, I don't need to see, I don't know, I don't need to see big blockbuster names in order to watch a show. Personally, if if there's something that's set in the Star Wars universe, I will find it interesting. I'll mm-hmm. probably watch it. You know, yeah, it's great that Rosario Dawson is playing Ahsoka Tana, <laughs> but if it was just Ahsoka Tana played by some nameless person, I'd still watch it. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I think, I think you touched on a big point there, right? It doesn't need to be the biggest names out there. It just needs to be something that, you know, that connects with people culturally. And, you know, as we've seen from Squid Game, it doesn't even need to be your own culture. It just needs to be something that grabs people. Yeah. And I think at least when, it, when you mentioned Disney Plus, right, they have all of their Disney IP. They have all of the Marvel IP. They have all of the Star Wars IP, all of the Fox IP. They have stuff. They have IP that will grab people that people are invested in that are that people are already super fans of the problem or the the trouble that Netflix runs into is that 
a lot of the stuff they have to build from scratch. But then you could also look at it like, hey, a positive is that they are building stuff from scratch. So that when it comes time for, you know, more, I don't know, like the next four seasons of Stranger Things, or maybe, you know, maybe it's done after season four. Maybe there's a spinoff of Stranger Things where Eleven gets her own series. You know, that is something that they have grown themselves that they haven't gone out and purchased from someone else. You know, maybe we're on when we're on the fifth season of Squid Game, it's something that Netflix has built themselves. And that's, you know, that's an advantage that they could have. Right. So it's not like, hey, we have to go out and buy these movie stars or we have to go out and buy this IP in order to bring these fans. And it's no, well, we have homegrown fans from the content that we've created on our service, which I think is going to pay off for them in the long run. Yeah, I, I definitely hope they can pull that off because you're right. That's the complete opposite of what the rest of the, the industry is doing. Uh, we haven't talked much about Amazon, but Amazon right now is making a, a whatchamacallit, Lord of the Rings show. And it's going to be one mm-hmm. of the most expensive shows ever made. They bought mm-hmm. the rights to Fallout, uh, a video game series by Bethesda, now owned by Microsoft. They're going to do a show on that. HBO is going to be doing a Last of Us TV show. So it's funny, all these, their competitors are using licensed stuff. And you're right, that is a quick way to get your subscriber count up. But if Netflix can't compete on those levels, like we've seen, they've lost the Marvel shows that's now on Disney+. Plus. They're doing a lot of really original content that's not really backed by any other uh, IP. Yeah, it's going to be an uphill battle, but hopefully you're right. Maybe this is something they pay off with. uh, And the fact that they own Stranger Things, they own, I would imagine they own Squid Game uh, and the license to it. Maybe that's how they kind of differentiate themselves by saying, hey, Netflix is the only place you're going to be able to get this stuff. Yeah, that's that's a a tough battle for them to fight against the, the big dogs, which is crazy to think because they're the originators. So they should be the big dog, but... Uh, and I think else. that's the thing is like, I think they still are mm-hmm. the biggest I agree. in terms of how many subscribers there. I think they are still by far. Everyone yeah. still is trying to catch up to them. But I guess it's kind of like there's blood in the water and the sharks are circling. So one final question I have is if you could only choose one and let's say it was opened up to the stuff from the state. So you get um, the Plus. American version of, of Amazon, really just Disney Plus, just Star Wars and Marvel, really yeah. over Lord of the Rings. I mean, yeah, come on. Over HBO. There's going to be a new Game of Thrones soon. I mean, they'd have to like win me over again after the last season of Game (laughs) of Thrones. So like, (laughs) I mean, that's all great IP, great intellectual property, but Mm -hmm. Star Wars and Marvel, that's, yeah, that's what I grew up on. Keep on putting that stuff out. Like, yeah, take my money. Disney Plus, man. They're the juggernaut. Disney Plus. Like, I don't even, you know, we've talked about this a bit before. I'm not even the biggest fan of Moon Knight, but it's in the Marvel Universe. You know, there's going to be some crossover. I still want to know what's going on, what's happening. Yeah. So, even Book of Boba Fett, not the best show, but because it was Boba Fett, because Mando came in and you got Baby Yoda, like, get back. <laughs> come on. Disney Plus all the way. If I could only choose one Disney Plus for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm I'm probably on the Netflix side, but I, I couldn't argue with that. I'd I'd probably 
If I thought about it more, I'd probably choose Disney Plus too. I mean, hey, if anyone listening wants to let us know what they would pick out of all the streaming services, you can find our Twitters in the description below. Take it easy, everyone in podcast land. Catch you in the next episode.